Hey, everybody. Good morning. Hey, my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at TLC, and I'm excited to share the word with you today. Please open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Open up to Romans chapter 8 and then hang on to it for like a while because we're not going to get to it for a hot minute, but I want you to be ready for it. We have a big topic to cover today, a lot of conversation to have, so we are going to get right into it this morning. Years ago, I was driving down 28th Street, and a car in the lane next to me cut me off, and it was like in slow motion. Have you had one of those moments? In slow motion, hits the front of my car, pushes my car right onto the sidewalk on the road. I went up onto two tires. And I barely missed some trees right in front of a small business there. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. Everybody was okay in both vehicles. But I was a bit shook up about it. And so uh, I also felt really bad. It was my father-in-law's car that I was driving. So that was a little extra uh, bummer. And uh, I I didn't have anybody to to help me out. So I called a buddy of mine uh, who worked at a church down the road. And he came to pick me up in one of those 15-passenger vans from the church, okay, so he picks me up. I, I was living uh, around the city at the time, and so uh, we had uh, like a stoplight about three blocks from my house. So we're at the stoplight, we're waiting to turn left onto my street, all the traffic is coming, and we get rear-ended. No joke, we get rear-ended. Two accidents in one day. I don't know how many people can have that claim. It's like an awesome two truths and a lie thing. I just slip in there all the time. Uh, it was a bad day. It was definitely a bad day. Have you ever had a bad day before? It's kind of a dumb question because we've all had a bad day, right? Check out some of these people. I want to show you some pictures of some people who are definitely having a worse day than you, okay? I only realized that they were there after the flash. Those are tigers, if you can't quite see. They are a female or sorry, they're female lions, they're not tigers, they're female lions, in the back, just, just waiting for him or something. Okay, next one. My mom almost crashed her car today because a snake started coming out of her vents while she was driving. Maybe that was the guy who cut me off. I don't know, something happened. <clears throat> next one. My housemates thought it would be a good idea to do this when I was asleep and then leave with the key for the next day. I have an interview in two hours. Can you see that he has a bike lock around his neck? (laughs) Can you imagine? Okay, it's a bad day. Well, good morning. I don't know how you wouldn't hear that in the middle of the night, but that's not fun to wake up to. It's definitely a bad day. I love this next one. A porcupine fell from a tree and fell on her head, the apex of unluckiness. I don't know how that possibly happens, but that is ridiculous and painful, I'm sure. Last one. On second thought, I think I'll I'll walk. Oh, man, if you went out to your car, can you imagine that? Those people are definitely having a bad day, all right? But what about if you're having a bad year? What if you're having a bad year? Like, we can all agree that 2020 is a pretty bad year, right? We've seen economic trouble Racial injustice, murder and hatred, sickness, the rise of COVID, loneliness and suffering, and even Michigan State beating Michigan at football. See, even I can make a a sports joke, all right? Like, you guys didn't think that was going to come from me today, but I have sports jokes, people. It's all good. We want this year to end. We think that it's just going to get better in January when 2021 happens, but that's not 
True, that's not the case because the problem isn't a year. The problem is evil. But we want to blame a year as if somehow that will help anything. We want to cast the blame onto something or someone for what's happening around us and what's happening to us. So we blame a system or we blame an ideal or we blame a political party. And when we run out of things to blame, we blame God. We say God must be the problem in all of this. And this is what we refer to as the problem of evil. One, if not the primary objections that people have to the idea of God is this. If there's a God and he's all loving and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Philosophers call this the problem of evil and it is the source of unbelief for millions of people. Millions of people. People just can't reconcile what they see in the world around them every day. Terrorism, rape happening on campus, another young black man being shot by the police, a child who dies of cancer, a storm that ravages a village and leaves nothing. Where is the good in any of that? Where is the good in any of that? Outspoken English atheist Stephen Fry was interviewed on what he would say to God if he met him one day. Let's take a look. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think I... I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. What kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that (laughs) I ever got in this entire series. (laughs) What Stephen Fry says there hits hard, doesn't it? This is a difficult topic to cover, and we're going to try to do it as best as we can in like the next 35 minutes, all right? This is the problem of evil, and the line of thought here is this. Any God who is all-powerful and all-good would be expected to stop horrendous evil and suffering, since he would not only want to prevent it, he would have the perfect ability to do so. Yet evil does indeed exist and persist. Therefore, this all-powerful and loving God either cannot exist or probably does not exist. Posed another way, 
You could say that the problem like this, why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've asked that question before. A little over a year ago, uh, last year, I was part of a funeral for a friend of mine who was driving one morning, got an accident, and was killed. Left behind his wife and a baby who was three months old. Why would that happen? That's the question we ask in all of this, is simply why? There's not a clear-cut answer to this. There's not just a simple solution we can just stamp and move on from. But I believe that scripture offers a lot of insight into this mystery. And I believe it offers an abundant amount of hope for those who are in the midst of suffering. But we've got some groundwork we got to lay first. We've got some work that we need to do. Because when we ask why do bad things happen to good people, we are assuming two things. First, we assume that there are good people. And two, we assume that there are bad people. Okay? But who gets to define that? Who gets to say that? Who gets to say what makes a good person and a bad person? Are you a good person? Are you a bad person? Who gets to define that? In order to come to the conversation today, we have to understand that Scripture defines this. And it teaches that every person is actually bad. It teaches that every person is actually evil. We can go back to Romans chapter 3, and we read that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And scripture tells us that there's no one who does good. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Because there aren't good people and bad people. There's just people. There's just humanity. And all of humanity is bent and twisted at its very core by sin. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be in our world. We can see that, right? We can feel that. We can feel that on so many different levels. There's nothing that sin hasn't touched or affected. Weather patterns, hurricanes, tsunamis, animals that will eat their babies or abandon their young at birth. Insects whose all per their only purpose is to just bring destruction to other insects or to other animals. If you've ever watched a show like Planet Earth, you've seen a lot of that kind of stuff. But you've also seen uh, how animals can just know stuff without really ever having to learn it. Right? Why do, why do birds migrate south for the winter? We call that instinct. Okay, you're, you're almost there. I know. Okay, I know you're with me. Okay. It's called instinct. And sin is the same way in our lives. That's how it works with sin for us. Sin is a, a natural, inborn part of being human. No matter how hard I try, I can't escape sin. It's part of me, and it's part of you. Are we having fun yet? I mean, this is just such an uplifting, positive conversation, okay? But this is the reason that evil exists at its most basic level. And throughout scriptures, all of its writers operate under this understanding. For them... Evil is always assumed. So let's take this a step further. Jesus in the Gospels, he taught his disciples how to pray. And if you know that prayer, you know this famous line from the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. On, in heaven. Notice that Jesus assumes that God's will was not done on earth, hence his prayer. For Jesus Heaven was the place that God's will was done all of the time. Earth, on the other hand, is where God's will is done some of the time. 
God isn't the only one with a will, an agenda for what he wants to see happen in the world and the capacity to carry it out. And God doesn't enforce his will at all times because he created a world with choice or what we call free will. So humans have a free will. We were created by God with the ability to choose good or to choose evil and to live out that freedom how we choose. You see, God didn't create us to be robots or animals of instinct, but free rational agents with the ability to choose and therefore to love in relationship. God desires relationship with us. God himself, remember that he exists in perfect giving, self-giving, loving relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. And God wants that for us as well. He wants and desires relationship. Now, why couldn't God just get what he wants by creating unilateral control over all creation? I suppose he could, but then there would be no genuine relationship. There would be no collaboration. There'd be no genuine sense of love. There'd be no genuine sense of love. So he created us with agency, with autonomy, meaning the freedom to do what we want. C.S. Lewis says it this way. I love this quote from him. Free will, though it makes evil possible, not only makes evil possible, but it's also the only thing that makes possible any love or joy or goodness worth having. A world of autonomy, a world of machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designed for his creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love. And for that, they've got to be free. Of course, God would know what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real harm and real good and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it. It is worth paying. If my wife and my kids were just forced to love me, if they were just programmed somehow to love me, would that be real love? Who would even want that kind of love? God doesn't force us to love him, but he does desire real, genuine relationship with us. And to give us that freedom, to experience true and genuine love, the reality of evil was worth the risk. So we have free will, and we can impose our will onto others. So God has a will. I have a will. My wife has a will. My kids have a will. My coworkers have a will. My neighbors have a will. The barista at Starbucks has a will. And everybody who's living has a will. And it is imposed into this world and onto you every single day. That's a lot of wills at play. Even nature has a will. Jesus commanded a storm, the wind and the waves to be still, and they obeyed his will. But left on their own, they will go and do what they want on their own will. And they're also subject to the curse of sin. Also, there are spiritual entities that have their own wills. And this is extremely important because we often forget this 
or we don't realize that it's true, or we push it aside, we just ignore it, or we don't really give it the kind of weight that it needs to have. The early church recognized two distinct realms at play, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And both are populated with a very real and powerful beings with the ability to interact and affect both dimensions of reality for better or for worse. And the reality is that Satan and his demons also have their own wills that they impose into our world and it is their desire to bring about death and destruction at every turn. We see all kinds of examples of this in scripture. The very first time we see this is in the book of Genesis, the first book of scripture. Jesus, or, or sorry, God has his perfect world there without sin, perfect creation, and Satan, who is the ultimate evil spiritual being, comes into the garden and he interacts with Eve, a human. He has a conversation with her. And in that conversation, he lies and he manipulates and the result is that sin enters into the whole world. In the book of Daniel, we have Daniel praying to God for help in a specific situation. And God hears his prayer and he answers his prayer. He says, yes, I will help you. I will send an angel to come and help. But we also read that this angel coming to help Daniel was delayed because of another spiritual being. And these two spiritual beings are at war with each other. And Daniel's prayer is delayed in getting answered because of this other spiritual being that is at war and this is what we call spiritual warfare. There are spiritual entities that are warring with each other for the command and control of things in our world. Further, in the Gospels, we see all kinds of people who have been afflicted and possessed by demons. And Jesus goes around casting out those demons, rebuking them, and healing people of the suffering that these spiritual beings have imposed onto their life and inflicted into them. We also see Satan, again, imposing his will in the life of Job. If you've read the book of Job, you know that Job is a human. He's an upright guy who loves the Lord. And we get a behind-the-scenes look. Satan comes to God, and he says, listen, Job is, is great. He loves you, but he only loves you because you have given him all this stuff. He's got a good life. And if you were just take it all away, then Job would curse you. And so God does something quite shocking. He actually allows Satan to make it happen. And so Satan goes on a rampage against Job and he brings death and destruction into his life. His family dies, his crops die, he loses his money, all kinds of things like that. And Job is left to sit in ashes with his suffering and try to process the evil that has been imposed onto his life. And he sits there wrestling with that just like we do. So all this to say that spiritual entities, call them whatever you want, you can call them demons, you can call them spiritual beings, powers, evil spirits, whatever. They are real and they have the ability to pose their will into this world. So, so much evil happens around us because of these wills. Humans will, nature's will, spiritual beings will. All at play to bring about what they desire, which is a byproduct of living in a free world. And not everybody uses their will for good. To take this even one step further, all of these wills that are at play create these kind of ripples, these actions that go out throughout our world. And these actions often can cause indirect consequences. In order 
to understand this, we need to hear from one of the most brilliant minds uh, in our world today, Dr. Ian Malcolm. <laughs> All right, if you've ever seen Jurassic Park, and if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, what's wrong with you? I don't even, I can't even comprehend that. I don't even know. I'm so sorry for you. Uh, but if you've seen it, you know that uh, Ian Malcolm is a mathematician in the movie, and he's all about the chaos theory, okay? Now, as much as I would love to think that Jurassic Park was real or that I hope that it would be real, uh, neither is Ian Malcolm. But the idea of chaos is, and it has a part to play in the problem of evil, Again, because of sin, we live in this world of chaos. And because of all the different wills at play in our world every day, we become victims of evil that were never intended towards us in the first place. So that means simply that somebody can do something as an act of evil that isn't directed at you, but it can kind of create these ripples that come out and you might actually be affected by that action indirectly because of something else. And so all of these wills are at play, sending out all these different kinds of actions in the world, and it just becomes chaotic. And in a world broken by sin, full of different wills, and in the swirling problem of chaos that results, where is God in all of it? This is the problem of evil. This, if this is how the world works, then why does God allow evil to happen? Turn to Romans chapter 8. Now we're going to look at that. Okay, so you got it there. Evil is the cause of so much suffering in our world. Paul is the author of Romans, and he understood everything that we just talked about. He understood it to be true. He understands suffering is real and part of our life, and this is what he has to say about it. Let's go ahead and pull that up. I consider that our present suffering, our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So here, Paul addresses the reality of what he calls our present sufferings. <clears throat> he goes on to say that, in fact, all of creation is suffering. All of creation is subject to frustration, and it waits in eager anticipation for it to be over. And Paul goes on in verse 23. Let's take a look at that. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit's, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes in what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, yet have, we wait for it patiently. Not only is all of creation suffering, humanity is as well. And so we wait for the redemption of our bodies, which is another way of saying that we wait for God to make it all right again. Because in verse 24, in this hope we were saved. What hope is that? That God will do something about suffering and about evil once and for all. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it. How? Patiently. 
Don't you hate waiting for stuff? I sure do. I hate that. But we are waiting for the time that God will set all things right again and remove suffering and evil once and for all. And as we wait, suffering is a reality in our lives. And Jesus tells us this is true. Jesus himself said, in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. By his death on the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death. He defeated Satan and all of his wild, dangerous spiritual beings. And he even defeated sin and death itself. It is done. It happened. So if that happened almost 2,000 years ago, why do we still have suffering today? Think of it like this, okay? For all of you historians out there, maybe like all two of you, <laughs> I don't know. At the end of World War, uh, we have World War II. And we recognize that on June 6, 1944, D-Day was the day that the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, and defeated the German military there. Historians agree that this was the decisive victory moment in that war. By the next morning, June 7, 1944, Hitler and his Nazi regime were done. They had no chance of winning, but it was followed by a full year, by a full year of bloody, ghastly fighting from the beaches of Normandy to the center of Berlin, where V-Day was declared and the war was officially put to an end. But the war was really won a full year before that. And in our story, Jesus has already defeated the enemy. And in a coming day, all of the enemies of God and all of evil will be completely eradicated for good. Right now, we live in the in-between. We live in the in-between of D-Day, of Jesus' victory on the cross, and V-Day at the end when God will come and set all things right and eliminate evil and Satan for good. And in the meantime, they're still fighting. In the meantime, the battle rages on. In the meantime, there are still casualties. There is still collateral damage. One of the most essential aspects of all of this is understanding what the devil does and what Jesus does. And Jesus himself in the uh, book of John says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Satan only brings death and destruction. Jesus brings life. Satan only brings death and destruction, but God is the source of all life. So when we direct blame in our life for something bad that has happened or for the suffering that we see around us or something that happens to us, we have to understand that it's not God's fault. God isn't to blame. God never in, uh, imposes evil directly into our world or into our life. The devil does that. So we have to get our perspective right. We have to get our perspective in the right place. Now, while God doesn't cause suffering in our lives, he does allow it to happen. He allows it to happen. And for many, this is the difficulty. You might be able to accept that God doesn't cause suffering, but it's more difficult to accept that God allows suffering to happen in your life, especially if you are in the midst of it. The truth is that we don't know why God allows suffering to happen. How's that for an answer? <laughs> we don't know why God allows suffering. We could really spend a lot of time 
unpacking all of that. And there's a lot of detail to that. And if you want to know more, you can actually pick up a copy of Tim Keller's book. I think we got a picture of it called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a fantastic book. It's a detailed book in all of this uh, topic of evil and suffering. And in, in the book, he talks about how we can't know why God allows suffering. We can't understand the mind of God and why he does what he does. We are not on the same level as God. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And even our culture has shaped how we approach this or how we think about it. Our modern culture has taught us that we are capable of knowing anything that we want. We have a smartphone. We can just figure out whatever we want. And whatever we feel has to be true. But actually, Keller says this. We assume because we can't, we can't personally remember any moral reasons why God would allow the existence of evil, then there isn't any. But we must acknowledge that God is infinitely more knowledgeable than we are and is certainly capable of having sufficient reasons for allowing evil that we can't think of. Now let's head back to the book of Job. God allows Satan to impose all this destruction and suffering onto Job. And so Job sits there and he asks God, why? Why, God? Why is there suffering? Why is there this sorrow and grief that have come upon me? And God responds by saying to Job that he is unable to understand God's purposes, even if they were revealed to him. It's the most difficult and severe truth that in the end, we cannot question God. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're going in through something and you're suffering and you haven't yet acknowledged that you are not going to be able to understand or process the why behind all of it. That's a hard truth to face. That's a hard reality to live in. And if that's all that it were, it would be true, but it would be difficult. It'd be true, but it would be devastating. It'd be true, but it would lack hope. Thankfully, that's not all the scripture has to say about suffering. The New Testament comes filled with an unimaginable comfort for those who are going through suffering. Tim Keller says this, The sovereign God himself has come down into this world and has experienced its darkness. He has personally drunk the cup of its suffering down to the dregs. And he did it not to justify himself, but to justify us. That is, to bear the suffering, death, and curse for sin that we have earned. He takes the punishment upon himself so that someday he can return and end all evil without having to condemn and punish us. We have a God who suffers for us. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he came and experienced all that this world is, all that humanity is, and he knows. Jesus knew weakness. He knew temptation. He knew tears, and he knew sorrow. He knew pain. He knew abuse. He knew despair. He knew torture. He even knew death. And on the cross, he suffered for us, experiencing a separation from God and the love of a father that we cannot even comprehend. Keller says this, here we see the ultimate strength, a God who is strong enough to voluntarily become weak 
and plunge himself into vulnerability and darkness out of love for us. And here we see the greatest possible glory, the willingness to lay aside all of his glory out of love for us. There is no other religion that even conceives of such a thing. We may not know why God allows suffering to exist in our lives, but we do know that we have a God who suffers and who does something about it. That is hope. That is hope. We have a God who cares and loves us more than we can possibly imagine, who would suffer and die in order to make it all right again. You will suffer in this life. You will experience it. And if you don't have God, you have nothing but to sit in your despair and in your hope and in your weakness with nothing, with nothing. But if you follow Jesus, you can go through suffering and hope because we have a God who has suffered for us, who has done something about it, and who will one day bring us to a place where we will have no more evil and no more suffering. Now, this doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that we can just kind of tie a bow on it and it just all becomes easy. But we also have something as followers of Jesus that others do not. As we go through suffering, we find two important things. Number one, that God will teach us through suffering. And two, that God walks with us through suffering. Our Western culture, and more specifically in our American church, we have come to really, I think in a lot of ways, believe the lie that all Jesus wants for us in this life is to be happy. And that our happiness is the top priority. And in fact, we've come to believe that we deserve to be happy. And any trouble we face, any suffering that we experience is an interruption to that happiness and it should be avoided at any cost. But as followers of Jesus, we recognize that suffering is also a means for God to change us. There are things in this life that you'll only ever learn about yourself, that you'll only ever learn about God because of suffering and going through it. In my life, I've had lots of moments of suffering and things that I've walked with through years now. And I can't go into detail in all these things and in, in one situation in particular, but it's been a deep hurt for me and for my family. It's a broken relationship that I have to continue to face all the time. And it continues to bring up anger that I have to continually give over to the Lord. And it's caused deep hurt for me and my family. We've had to pray and ask God for his help over and over again. In the midst of the suffering, God has taught us how to love and how to forgive as Christ would. This is not something I would want. I would ask and pray God, of course, growing up, God, would you teach me how to love people like you do? But I don't want to learn it like this, right? I don't want to have to go through this. And I don't believe it's going to ever be healed this side of heaven, but I've come to realize that it's possibly the only way for me to truly understand what it's like to love people who have hurt you and to forgive them. God teaches us in the midst of suffering. But God also walks us through in the midst of suffering. He walks with us through suffering. As you experience suffering in your life, you don't have to go through it alone. When you're in the midst of suffering, right, 
if there's a despair and there's a loneliness that is there and all you want is for somebody to come alongside you and to care and understand. They don't have to do anything. They just have to be with you. And that gives you strength. That gives you comfort to face another day. We may have suffering in this life, but God doesn't leave us to go through it alone. He walks with us through the suffering. I mean, what kind of God is that? What kind of God would care like that? It's a God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Some of you uh, know who the Hoffmans are here at TLC. And uh, I reached out to Lindsay. I asked her if she would make a video and share her story with us about how her and her family have been experiencing suffering and how they've seen God walk with them through it all. So let's check out Lindsay's story. Good morning, TLC family. It is so good to join you this morning. I'm Lindsay Hoffman, and my husband Chase and our daughters, Elsie and Adeline, have been with the TLC community since the very beginning days. And although we join you online in this season, we are very much looking forward to the day uh, that we can worship and be with you all in person again. But for today, welcome to our living room. Jordan asked me this week if I'd be willing to share just a bit about our journey um, through this season of suffering that we find ourselves in as a family. And I'll just tell you from the beginning, I have zero perspective from where we are. We're still very much in the middle of it, but I am praying and believing that the Spirit would cover my words today, that He would give us His perspective, and that He would just use this unknown, vulnerable place that I find myself in for His glory and your good. So I just took a few notes on my phone this morning, so I'm just going to read them to you so I can keep on track and share a little bit of my heart. On Thursday, April 30th, 2020, we woke up in the morning and all was normal in our family's world. We had a doctor's appointment scheduled for our three-year-old daughter, Elsie, to check on a bruise that just wasn't healing very quickly. But other than that, it was a completely normal day. By the time we made it to the evening, though, we found ourselves at DeVos Children's Hospital learning that life as we knew it would never be the same. With Chase on FaceTime because of the COVID restrictions and Elsie in my arms, we heard the sentence that changed our lives in an instant. Your daughter has leukemia. A life-altering moment. I had no emotion, just shock. I looked at Chase on my phone screen and held an inconsolable Elsie in my arms and closed my eyes. It was then in my desperation, the spirit whispered so clearly and so tenderly, I am with you. Daughter, beloved daughter, I am with you. You are not alone. It was my darkest moment, and yet the reach of the Father into my broken heart was closer than anything I've ever felt in all my life. It feels as though we've lived years since that day, only six months ago. I find myself fighting on my knees daily as we walk with Elsie through this battle with cancer. I'm learning how to surrender what my flesh so desperately wants to control. But the freedom in his love and the unexplainable peace that he lavishes on me right here in the trenches, I wouldn't trade it. In a season that would otherwise feel extremely isolating and lonely, he's reminding me that he is with me. 
He's with me when I cry alongside Elsie. He's with me when we have another 10-hour clinic day at the hospital, and he's with me when we wait for the results. He's with me when I wake early just to spend a few uninterrupted minutes with him. He's with me when I feel the spiritual warfare as he advocates and advances his kingdom through our story. He's with me when I have more questions and answers. He's with me when I have to work extra hard to take deep breaths or when I don't have the words to comfort my daughter or myself or anyone. He is with me and his presence changes everything. It's better than play dates or coffee dates or any kind of dates. <laughs> Even still, in his kindness, he has given me a husband who I can confide in, grieve with, and discover unforeseen joy as we journey together. He's given me dear friends who ask the hard questions, who show up and love well as they navigate this heart alongside of us. And he's given me strangers turned family who come along at the exact right moments. I don't know what tomorrow holds or how Elsie's body is going to respond to chemo in the coming days, or when we'll have to rush to the hospital because of a fever. But I do know who holds my future and hers. That is where my rest is found. Return to your rest, O oh my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I'm learning that hope the hope of Christ isn't a hope of a cancer-free life. <laughs> it's eternally greater than that. Many days it feels as though I'm still taking that first step into the Red Sea, the one that hasn't yet parted. And as I take that step again and again, he shows up. And he makes a way through the two high waters, and it's an invitation to witness a thousand different miracles unfolding all around me. In fact, I wonder sometimes if this season for us is less about a cancer diagnosis and more about a God who desires to redeem the parts of my heart and my family's hearts that wouldn't otherwise be healed on this side of heaven. He is good. He is faithful. He doesn't waste anything, not even cancer. I love you, TLC family. Thank you so much for just listening to a little bit of my heart this morning. I hope that he uses it however he sees fit. Bye. I can't imagine facing something like that. I love her rawness and her authenticity in all of it, don't you? Thank you, Lindsay, for sharing your story with us. I'll close with this. If you don't believe in God, you don't have to square away any of the difficulties of evil. It just is. But you also don't get to take in any of the comforts of what God offers. God will teach us through the midst of suffering. He will walk with us through the midst of suffering. God has done something about it and he will do something about it one day. Until then, we live in the in-between. So the next time that evil comes smashing in your door, don't have a crisis of faith as if God is to blame. Odds are, he's not. Instead, 
meet God in your pain and grieve in your suffering and then get up and join Jesus in his quest to turn evil around for good. One last quote from Tim Keller. We do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random, but at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there. And he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Someone might say, but that's only half an answer to the question why. Yes, but it is the half we need. You are not alone in your suffering. God is with you. Next week, we start the season of Advent. It's a season that we celebrate and remember the way that Jesus came into our world, born as a baby, to set us free. It's a season of love and hope and joy and peace. Our world is dark right now. There's a lot of suffering that's going on around us. But in Advent, we're reminded that Jesus came as the light into the darkness. And that light is here now. It is present now. It is with us now. And so we're going to sing one last song. And you have a cup of communion from when you came in. And here's how we're going to, we're going to take it a little bit differently today. Normally, we would love to have you come up at a table and take that. But with COVID and everything, we're just going to do it at your seats. And normally we would lead you through taking the cup, the body of Christ, the symbolic body of Christ, the symbolic blood of Christ. But today we're going to sing a song and I would just like for you to sit and think about the suffering that you have experienced. And I want you to bring that to God today. And when you're ready, go ahead and take the bread in the cup, which is evidence that Jesus has tasted and felt suffering for us. And take it when you want. And then when you're ready, can we stand in response and sing to the King of Kings? Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you. For sending Jesus. For being a God who is not far away being a God who is with us in every moment that we face. You are good to us. And God, we know that although evil is out there, we see it, we know it, we feel it, you are with us through it, and we know that you have done something about it. Thank you for being a God who suffers for us. And today, we remember Today, we remember what you have done for us. You sent Jesus to die on the cross, to suffer our death, that we might have life. I pray for those who are here today who don't know that, who have not yet experienced your life and the gift of life that you have. Jesus, it's what you do, it's what you bring. And so in this moment today, I pray that you would heal and that you would redeem and that you would be with those who are suffering, that you would remind them that you are with them there. You meet us in the suffering. Thank you. We love you for all that you've done for us. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.